welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. And welcome back to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I'm here with the author of a really fascinating book about one of my favorite actors, um, an interest that has been noted on this show before. Um, and I am so excited to talk about this fascinating book. Hi, can I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Yeah, my name is Zach Schoenfeld. I am the author of How Coppola Became Cage. It's so much fun. And it's such an interesting part of Nicolas Cage's career. Um, could you start by talking a little bit about, um, you know, your career and sort of may, how it may have led you to this book, um, like how you started sure. writing and sort of how this project came to you? Sure. Um, so I, I'm i a, a reporter, journalist, critic, um, specializing in writing about pop culture, particularly film and music are my two big interest areas. Um, and I worked at Newsweek for five years as a senior writer uh, covering culture. Um, and one of the one of the highlights of my career at Newsweek is that I, I, inter- I got to interview Nicolas Cage in 2015 when he was promoting um, one of like many long forgotten, like straight to VOD movies that he was pumping out during that era. It was called Pay the Ghost. Um, <laughs> Not a very memorable movie, but the experience of interviewing Nicolas Cage for me was super exciting. Um, he's been one of my favorite actors for a long time. Um, I I think he, he's such a shapeshifter as an actor. He's excelled at so many different genres. Um, and part of what fascinates me about Nicolas Cage is that I feel like even in his daily life, when he's not acting, he seem he sort of seems like he's acting in a Nicolas Cage movie, just because he is such an eccentric and such a such an enigmatic character, and he lives his life to such an extreme. And even even when he's in a bad movie, even when he's like doing a movie that is not particularly memorable, he still commits to the performance to such such an incredible degree. Um, so yeah, so. Um, I so I was working at Newsweek for five years and Newsweek's parent company went pretty haywire during that time. There was a lot of turmoil, a lot of a lot of corruption and layoffs. I ended up getting let go by Newsweek in 2019 and I went full time freelance. So I started um, writing for a lot of different publications on a freelance basis. And um, during my like first year as a freelancer in 2019, I wrote this article about Vampire's Kiss um, for The Ringer, and the piece was the piece was um, pegged around the 30th anniversary of Vampire's Kiss, which is probably my favorite Cage performance. I I think that um, that is Cage at his like most unleashed. It's it's like any anything that performance really displays his full like intensity and bravado and wackiness as an actor so i wrote i wrote this piece and and you know the thing part of what fascinates me about vampire's kiss is that the movie was a total flop when it came out and only only years if not decades later was the movie really embraced as a kind of modern cult classic especially in the era of internet memes and youtube supercuts people have really come around on vampire's kiss 
um, and it has really found a new audience. So I wrote this piece that um, I tracked down a lot of the people involved with Vampire's Kiss, the producers, the director, the uh, screenwriter, the cinematographer. And um, I did, I wrote a piece that, you know, it was kind of like the definitive backstory of Vampire's Kiss. Like, how did this movie get made? What was it like to work with a young Nicolas Cage um, on, you know, one of his wildest movies? And there were so many amazing stories from the making of that film. Um, the famous story that everyone knows is that Cage ate a live cockroach during the making of the movie on camera because he thought he felt like that was what the character needed. Um, and um, that piece, yeah, so that piece was published by The Ringer in 2019 and it got a lot of attention. Like Cage fans were really excited about it. Um, you know, there there were so many like interesting wild stories about, you know, his commitment to that film and, and the wild lengths that he went to in order to portray this character who, you know, is going insane and thinks he's turning into a vampire. Um, so that that piece was really the inspiration for the book, um, because um, that piece is how I got connected with my agent, Barbara Zitwer, who was one of the producers of Vampire's Kiss. She um She's now a literary agent, which is kind of ironic because Vampire's Kiss is actually a movie about a literary agent who goes insane. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, so um, after the piece came out, Barbara um, reached out to me. We got coffee and she she was saying, you know, I, I think you could you could do a whole book about Cage. And we we kind of shot some ideas back and forth or, you know, originally originally we talked about doing a whole book that's just about vampires kiss but that was a little bit too narrow um i don't think that would have supported an entire book um my idea was you know what if i did a book that was like an oral history of cage in the 80s what if the book started in 1980 and then ended in 1989 um which was when he shot which was when he filmed wild at heart although it didn't come out until 90 um but yeah the the idea kind of evolved from there i i decided that i wanted to do a whole book about cage's early years um the obviously if you've read the book you'll know the book begins before 1980 it, it delves pretty deep into his childhood because as i was doing this research i realized that um cage had a very difficult very turbulent childhood and some of his and we could talk about that some of some of the experiences that he had during his childhood later were fed into various performances of his. Um, and instead of ending, instead of ending the book in 89, I decided to end with him winning the Oscar for leaving Las Vegas, which was in the mid nineties. Um, because I, I felt like leaving Las Vegas was the culmination of, of kind of like the first era of his career. Like I felt like leaving Las Vegas was the culmination of his career in independent cinema Um and it was a real moment of vindication for him after a lot of people had laughed him off. A lot of people had thought that he was a weirdo who could never really make it as a mainstream star. And then he won the Oscar for leaving Las Vegas in 96. And after that, his career transformed virtually overnight and he became a big, you know, big uh, blockbuster mega budget action star action hero. Um, so, yeah, so I, I decided to end the book right before he became this like you know, big Hollywood action hero. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, I really am fascinated by that time frame um, because it does give the story like a nice 
button, you know, um, and it yeah. also does, as you say, um, start like a totally new phase. Um, like I found, right. it so, uh, I love that. Like, basically, I don't want to spoil this for people. I can cut it if you want me to, but the last line being about, and then he signs up for the rock. And that really is yeah. colors, like the rest of his career, kind of, you know, wow. Um, yeah, I really, um, yeah, I, I felt like between leaving Las Vegas and the rock, you know, so much changed for Cage and his career really changed overnight. And all of a sudden he was working with Michael Bay and and Bruckheimer and he was getting paid like $15 million a movie. Like he became one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. So I, I wanted to end the book right before that point because the book is really not about his entire career. It's about his origin story. It's about like, how did this, kind of dorky weird kid named Nicholas Coppola you know become a cultural icon um so yeah I that that's why I chose to end the book where where I ended it nice yeah so let, let's talk about uh his childhood and his family a little bit because he does like throughout his career have uh like very conflicted feelings about being yeah and has a very like totally just relationship with his uncle and you know with his father sometimes so yeah could you maybe talk about that family connection and how that like um shapes some of his early choices sure um so for any listeners who aren't aware um nicholas cage is the nephew of francis ford coppola um his birth name is nicholas coppola um and when he was about eight years old, um, his uncle directed The Godfather, which obviously became one of the most successful movies of all time. And all of a sudden, Francis Ford Coppola became, um, you know, one of the most well-paid, celebrated, acclaimed directors in Hollywood, um, which was very disorienting for um, young Nicholas, because Nicholas... Um, during that same time period, he was dealing with some really traumatic events in, in his childhood. His his uh, his mother wa was dealing with serious mental illness and his mom was institutionalized for for a number of years during his childhood. And that was really, really difficult for him. Um, I think I think she had schizophrenia, although it's not entirely clear what what she was dealing with. But um, Cage's father, August Coppola, the older brother of Francis Ford Coppola um, was this like kind of eccentric literary professor, very unusual man. Um, you know, his, his, part of why, you know, part of why Cage was so fascinated by movies from a young age is because his father was introducing him to all these arty, like artsy avant-garde movies when he was a child like his, you know cage has talked about how when he was a kid his father would be showing him fellini movies instead of disney movies and um his father was really interested in um german expressionist films from the 1920s like nosferatu which was a huge influence on cage um so and, and um you know and cage was was introduced to great literature from a very young age because of his father um but the complicated thing is that his father like my understanding is that cage's father really resented um the fact that like after francis became so successful like the whole coppola family kind of went into the hollywood business um obviously francis's children all followed followed in his footsteps and and wound up working in film um 
And Francis really overshadowed all the other family members. And, you know, I think there was a lot of resentment between August and Francis about the fact that Francis became the like golden child of the family. Um, And for this reason, um, Cage's father really did not encourage him to become an actor. And in fact, he was very much disapproving of of Cage's um, aspirations of of being a movie star. And so there was a lot of tension between between Cage and his father when he was in high school and even beyond that. Um, And there's also the fact that um, Cage, you know, his mother was institutionalized. He was being raised by his father, who didn't really have the time or money to be raising three boys as as effectively a single parent. Um, and, and all, you know, Cage's father wasn't making a whole lot of money. He was a professor. He was working for Cal State University. Um, and so Cage has talked about how he had this, this resentment of the fact that his uncle and his cousins, you know, he would go visit them in Northern California and they were living in this beautiful mansion with a movie theater in their basement. And Cage kind of stewed with, with jealousy because he, lived a much more modest lifestyle. Like he, you know, he's talked about how he couldn't even afford to have a car when he was in high school at Beverly Hills High, which was like the ultimate indignity for a teenager in in Southern California in the early 80s. Um, so Cage had a lot of a lot of pent up resentment about the fact that, you know, he had he had a tough childhood. And and so when people when he started his career and people um, found out that he was Francis Ford Coppola's nephew. I think a lot of people assumed that he had been born into riches and that he had, you know, been born with a, with a silver spoon in his mouth. And that was far from the truth. He actually had a very difficult childhood. And so um, part of why he changed his name from Coppola to Cage was because he didn't like people making these assumptions about him. And he especially didn't like people dismissing him as you know in the modern parlance a nepo baby people um you know would think that he only got roles because of who his uncle was and he wanted to prove that he could make it on his own and on you know he could he could get roles on his own merits which is what he set out to do yeah it's really movingly told and i think that like that discussion sets up um, the discussion of his like body of work so interestingly because you kind of break yeah. it phases you know of like him yeah. trying new things putting on new hats you know like disposing of tactics like trying a lot of different acting strategies um, right can you talk a little bit about that and maybe like what is your like what is your favorite of these phases like you talked about your love of vampire's kiss is it that like super yeah experimental bombastic phase you love or <laughs> I mean my favorite cage performances come from all different eras of his career. So, but I I would say I'm very fascinated by that, that period in his career in the late eighties and early nineties, when he, he had done Moonstruck and Moonstruck was a big hit and it became his biggest box office success of the eighties by far. Um, You know, it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. Critics loved it. Cher, you know, Cher won the Academy Award. Um, and Cage's response to that was to try to distance himself from Moonstruck as much as possible because he he didn't like the movie. He hadn't wanted to do such a, you know, such a gooey romantic movie. He felt like it was too soft. It was it was too, you know, accessible. And he wanted to be this rebellious bad boy. He didn't want to do mainstream romantic comedies. Um, 
which seems which seems funny in retrospect because Moonstruck is a pretty dark movie. It's you know it's not like it's not some like bland generic romantic comedy. Like it's very morbid. There's a lot of death in it. But um, yeah, so Cage really lashed out against the success of Moonstruck, which is something I find fascinating. He he did Vampire's Kiss right after that. Then he did this this weird Italian movie called Time to Kill, which like barely got released in the U.S. and it is not a good movie at all. Um, and then um, after that, he did Wild at Heart, which which is obviously a very polarizing, violent, you know, rock and roll kind of film. You know, to- you know, total David Lynch at his lynchiest. Um, so Cage, you know, part of what I find fascinating about Cage is that he's he's always like reacting to what he's done before and trying to do something completely different um and this phase of his career where he was just you know pursuing the most polarizing and punk rock and you know kind of experimental roles that he could possibly find because he didn't want people to pigeonhole him as this you know rom-com moonstruck handsome boy you know falling in love with Cher um and then yeah, so you so you asked me about the different phases of his career. Um, you know, to to re, to re, to rewind a little bit, um, there was this phase very early on in you know in the early to mid eighties where he was trying to be a method actor, and he was very he was very influenced by his heroes, people like Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Marlon Brando, um, and he was particularly I think he was um, very influenced by the the stories and the legends that he had heard about you know these these like intense method actors of the 60s and 70s and how they would you know they wouldn't just act they would live the part you know de niro in particular there was a lot of mythos around you know how de niro would work like 12 hour shifts as a cab driver when he was doing taxi driver or he would um gain 60 pounds in order to try to like live the part of Jake LaMotta for Raging Bull. Um, and then Al Pacino like went so deep into character for Serpico that he would like pretend to be a cop and go around arresting people. Um, Cage was very, um, very influenced by those kinds of legends. And he, he decided that he needed to do that. He needed to live the part. He needed to remain in character 24 seven, which is, you know, it sounds romantic mm. when you read about it, but when you actually try to do that, when you're playing, when you're playing a role like the part of Vincent Dwyer in the Cotton Club, you know, Cage, Cage plays this really vicious um, homicidal gangster in in that movie, The Cotton Club, and he decided that he needed to live the part, you know, the entire time that he was on the set of The Cotton Club, which became a problem because he started like stomping around and. At one point, he destroyed his trailer because he wanted to remain in character as this violent gangster. And um, at one point, he was going around like kicking and and damaging like vintage cars that were being used as part of the the film set. Um, he was acting really erratic and and really um, crazy because he was trying to live the part of this violent gangster and gradually he realized um you can't do that like if you're playing a terrible person if you're playing a terrible person on screen you can't like try to inhabit the role of a terrible person 
24/7 because it's 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 it creates chaos. Um there there's there's an anecdote that I talk about in the book where he got in trouble on the set of The Cotton Club because he um the character that he was playing was very racist and uses racial slurs during the film and um he started using the racist vocabulary of his character like in between in between shooting like just on set and at one point he he used a racial slur and there was an extra who was black who got really upset with him and tried to fight him um and it like caused all kinds of chaos on set so you know the point of the story is not that Nicolas Cage is a racist. The point of the story is that like he was so determined to remain in character that he he was always taking it too far. He was he was always, you know, doing crazy stunts like that. And I think one of the like one of the animating um one of the animating questions of the book for me is how far can you go for a film performance? How far has, how far can an actor really go in order to inhabit the character that they're playing on screen? And how far, you know, how far is too far? Like, how far does Nicolas Cage take it? And um, does that result in a great performance? Or does it just distract from the performance itself? Like, how far can one man go for the sake of a film performance? I think, I think that's been a recurring theme throughout Cage's career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he loves testing boundaries, it seems like, you know, like within himself and Definitely. the people around him. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up uh, Cotton Club and that um, that anecdote and as well as some of the others, um, because there are like a lot of really great interviews uh, that are sort of represented in this book, too, throughout your research and interviews you've done in the past and for this. Um, and so I'm t wondering about, like, when you are interviewing, and I imagine there's, mm -hmm. like, kinds, right? Because you, there's the ones that, that you're getting anecdotes, but there's also sort of, like, the journalistic due diligence that's at work, right? You, right? So, like, right. Um, how do you approach interviews and, um, like, bringing up these, like, you know, like stories that might still be a little bit of like touch points or, you know, sore spots for people? Like, how do you approach those like difficult subjects? Mm, that's a good question. Um, you know, one one thing that I learned while writing about Nicolas Cage for that Vampire's Kiss piece, um, I kind that piece kind of taught me that like everyone who's ever worked with him has a story that has stuck in their head for 20 or 30 or even 40 years. I, like, everyone who has ever worked with Nicolas Cage has a memorable story about how intense he is or how, how, um, how much he commits to a performance behind the scenes in ways that viewers might not even understand. So when I was interviewing sources for this book, I was really trying to, um, trying to like get anecdotes out of them. I was trying to jog their memory and I, I was really saying like, what's your best Nicholas Nicholas Cage story? Like, you know, you worked with him on this film 30 some odd years ago. Like, what is the craziest thing he did? What was your impression of him? What, you know, what has stuck in your memory for all these years? And pretty much everyone has a story. Um, like, for instance, um, you know, I, I interviewed David Lynch for the book and David Lynch loves talking about, Kate, you know, how Cage saying those Elvis Presley songs in Wild at Heart. And, you know, that wasn't even in the original shooting script. That's something that like Lynch and Cage just like came up with what when they were uh, talking on set during the shoot, like 
Um, and Cage committed to it. Cage, Cage really, um, really dove into the whole Elvis Presley theme. Um, you know, I, I interviewed Martha Coolidge, who directed Valley Girl, and she has an amazing story about how she had Cage audition for the movie and she didn't even know that he was Francis's nephew. Um, she just picked his his headshot out of the reject pile and was like, you know, we need someone who looks like this and brought him in without no without having any idea who he was. Um it's um it's complicated because um you know um the book is about events that happened 30 to 40 years ago and there were a lot of competing um versions of stories a lot of people remember things differently um i'll give you an example like um cage himself in old interviews has told a story about the making of racing with the moon which was one of his very first roles um it's, it's this period piece that came out in 84 um he that he has told a story you know that was during his method acting phase where he was working with sean penn and he was very influenced by sean penn's attempts to be a method actor and according to cage during the shooting of that film at one point he uh he wanted to feel real pain. He like, he wanted to feel the the pain, the emotional pain that his character was feeling. So he took out a pocket knife and he literally cut his arm and started bleeding because he felt like that would be a shortcut in order to feel the pain that his character was feeling, um, which is a crazy thing to do. And according to Cage's account, the director, Richard Benjamin, was like, what are you doing? Like, cut it out, man. Like, this is not that kind of movie. The director actually um, reprimanded him. And I inter I interviewed Richard Benjamin for the book. Um, you know, he's, he's in his early 80s now. And he had a lot of very vivid memories of working with Cage and Sean Penn on that movie. But he had no memory of Cage cutting himself and and that particular anecdote he he didn't rem he said as far as I'm concerned I don't think that ever happened um so and th this kind of thing happened a lot where someone remembers it one way and someone else remembers it another way and so it was really tricky to fact check that kind of stuff because memory you know people's the human memory is obviously very fallible Pe people often remember things differently than the way it actually went down um, I don't know if the knife story really happened and maybe Richard Benjamin doesn't remember it, um, or perhaps Cage invented the story in order to build this mythos around himself, because that's another complicating, you know, that's another complicating factor of the book is that Cage, I don't think he made up stories, but he definitely exaggerated stories for the sake of his own, you know, his own reputation and his, he was trying to build a legend around himself. Um, and so I, for example, in the book, I talk about the wisdom teeth, you know, the, the, the story is that Cage was playing a Vietnam vet in the 1984 film Birdie, which is a great film, very underrated Cage performance. Um, and he was so determined to try to live the part of a Viet, you know, he played, he plays this guy who got part of his face blown up in combat in Vietnam. And he was so determined to try to live the part that he wore bandages on his face for weeks on end, he refused, you know, he slept in his bandages, refused to take them off. And he 
went around telling people that he had two teeth pulled with in order to feel the pain that his character was feeling because his character had been wounded in war. Um, and he told interviewers, like he, he would, he would tell the story to interviewers in 84 and 85, where he was like, you know, I had my teeth pulled out in order to feel pain when I was shooting birdie. And, um, this, and the story kind of like became this legend that was passed down. Like if you, if you read any magazine profile of cage from the eighties, or early 90s like there's a very good chance that it's going to mention like you know this actor is so crazy that he had two teeth pulled out for the sake of a performance um the truth is he was exaggerating he like the the actual fact of the matter is he he had wisdom teeth that had not come out on their own and they needed to be removed for like legitimate dental reasons and so this was like a fully necessary dental procedure the teeth needed to be removed um like at one point he claimed that he had them, he had teeth pulled out without Novocaine. That was totally not true. Later he admitted that like it was a legitimate dental procedure. He used Novocaine. Like, you know, it, there wasn't anything that crazy about it. The teeth needed to come out, but he went around telling people that he had teeth pulled just for the sake of a performance and people ate it up. It became, it became this like very, um, very alluring juicy story about how intense cage is um and it became part of his legend so he was he was he was deliberately and knowingly trying to build up this legend around himself and it worked because he certainly you know accrued a reputation as this incredibly intense method actor who would do anything for a performance um and so one of the challenges of the book and you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I always succeeded at this because it's hard to do. But one of one of like the core challenges of this book is I wanted to try to separate fact from myth. I wanted to try to figure out like what of the many stories that have been told of the many rumors and legends that have spread about Nicolas Cage's early career. I wanted to figure out what is true and what is bullshit. And, you know, how how can we how can we separate the fact from the myth here how how can we verify what actually went down on the set of birdie or vampire's kiss or peggy sue got married or any of the you know myriad other uh classic films that he made during this era mm. Yeah, it is a very complicated task. And, you know, I think it plays into, as you say, his own like, yeah, participation in his myth making. And which always struck me as weird, you know, because that he is so, um, you know, also conflicted about like his memification and sort of the place he occupies in pop culture, because that seems a little contradictory, you know, like, uh, like, can you talk about that a little bit, you know, like, because he does like, seem to create a lot of mystique you know and legendary stories and like exaggerated exaggerated like eccentricity but then he's also very uncomfortable with like how he is received like by the culture you know (laughs) yeah so um the memes there it, it over the past 10 to 15 years it's been interesting to see cage become an internet meme um we you know there are these reaction gifs and memes that sp- started spreading on the internet, I would say around 2010, 2011, um, especially like 
screenshots of, of him making those crazy expressions and vampires kiss. Um, and there were YouTube supercuts that went viral uh, during this period. Um, the, I think the, the big one that got a lot of attention was like a supercut of Nicolas Cage losing his shit. And it's basically just like a, a master cut of, of Cage in like all different movies from throughout his career, just like screaming and cursing. And, and, you know, there's the famous clip of him in, in Deadfall, like walking through a strip club, screaming the word fuck at the top of his lungs. And the clip from Zondali where he's pouring black paint all over himself and screaming, black it out, black it out. Um, so it's interesting because like on one hand, these supercuts and memes definitely contributed to his legend and his mythos. And um, a lot of people really delighted in in celebrating his wackiness and his, you know, turning him into this um, this subject of Internet fascination. I think it became an expression of a lot of people's fandom and expression and obsession with Nicolas Cage. Um but on the other hand, there was something frustrating about it, certainly to Cage himself. And Cage has talked about how he he didn't like the fact that people were treating him as a joke and as a punchline. And, you know, when it comes to the memes and the supercuts, he didn't like the fact that they were taking these moments out of context. And um, and I can understand that because when you watch the supercuts, like some of. So, you know. Some of these are great movies. Some of them are not great movies. But like when when he has these freakouts in movies, like there's a context for it. Like you, you need to understand what brought the character to this place of insanity. You know, why why is he screaming and and throwing the table over at the casino and leaving Las Vegas? You know, th- there's a whole narrative that brings the character to this place of despair. Um, and it was very disturbing for cage to see his performance his performances being taken out of context um i i didn't know that he had such a such a um i I didn't know that the memes were such a sore spot for cage until 2015 that was that was it was in 2015 that i interviewed cage for newsweek and i briefly talk about this in the book where um i asked him about the memes and I, I during that interview I asked him like what do you think about the internet treating you as a meme um and he answered the question you know he gave a pretty brief polite answer where he he said something like oh you know I just try not to think about it too much because I don't have much control over that mm-hmm. and then after this was a phone interview that I did for Newsweek magazine and after after we got off the phone the interview was over the publicist who had set up the interview called me back and it was like you know can you cut that question from the interview like we we don't like you know we don't we don't really want you asking nicholas about the memes like can you just not publish that in the interview um and i was really taken aback because you know when i do interviews with celebrities i don't agree to any like um preconditions of what i'm allowed to ask them so the question was fair game Mm. and I had to get my editor on the phone with this publicist and my editor stood by me and said, like, this was a fair question. There's no reason for us to cut this from the interview. Um, you know, th- this is fair game. It's it's um, it was a completely reasonable question. And I remember the publicist got a little bit a little bit upset and was like, well, if you're going to publish that question, we'd rather you just spike the whole interview. And we were like, what are you talking about? Like, we're not going to spike the interview 
because you don't like a question that I asked your client. Like that's not how journalism works. Um, but, but that was, that was memorable. That, that was, um, it was really interesting. I don't, you know, I don't know if Nicholas Cage was the one who was so upset about the question or if it was just the publicist was trying to do yeah. some sort of damage control. Um, but that was when I realized that he has, he's very sensitive about the way the internet has kind of turned him into a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes he's gone along with the joke. Like he did that SNL segment with Andy Samberg back in 2012, where he was kind of, you know, he was, he was game to play along with Andy Samberg's impression of him. But then other times he's been very um, sensitive about it. And there's, there's a quote in my book from Cage's brother, Christopher Coppola, where Christopher talks about how, um, um, how he convinced Cage to, um, reprise the character of Eddie in Deadfall in the movie Arsenal, which was really, really a terrible movie in my opinion. Um, but because, because Cage's performance in Deadfall had kind of like become part of those YouTube supercuts, Christopher was able to convince his brother to revisit that character in a new film, which was a truly bizarre thing to do because the character actually dies in Deadfall. He, he, actually dies in a deep fryer in like a really gruesome death scene um (laughs) but anyway yeah so the memes the memes are interesting um vampire's kiss has certainly become a repository of cage memes Mm -hmm. um and i think i think that certainly is part of the reason why that film has been embraced as a cult classic by a lot of younger fans um but at the same time it frustrates me when people talk about Vampire's Kiss as being a joke movie. I And I know it frustrates Cage as well. Um, like, I don't like it when people say things like, oh, like, it's such a, it's such a, it's a good bad movie. Like, it's one of the best bad movies ever. Like, that, I find that frustrating because I feel like it's a way for people to kind of, like, express fondness for a movie while asserting their own superiority over it. There's something very, there's something very smug and disdainful about that which i personally um i don't like that but um yeah the memes are complicated on one hand they've definitely helped um they've helped they've definitely helped bring cage back to public prominence but they've also reduced him to a bit of a punchline and i very much wanted my book to um i wanted my book to explore cage as a human being and not a meme. I really wanted my book to like go behind behind the memes, behind all the internet jokes and and um silliness around Cage and try to like portray him as a complicated human being and artist. Mm. You brought up such a good point um, that it does like those supercuts do uh, kind of re- reduce him to like a one note actor, you know, because like all right. of course do have like really um like have context in which they make a lot more sense sometimes you know than when you see them just all in a row right right Um, yeah wow and like that is a absolutely explains why he would have such a you know a mixed feelings about it and i do think this book does a great job of getting at the real person behind behind the memes yeah i definitely my one of my key goals with the book was to try to demythologize cage um try to dig deeper than all of the 
memes and stories and rumors about him because you know there's so much there's so much like silliness and wackiness around him and i wanted to figure out like who who is the real guy like who who was he before he was nicolas cage who was he when he was nicolas coppola and also like why has he made you know he's he's made a lot of um strange and surprising choices throughout his career and i wanted my book to really dig into like why did he agree to do a movie like vampire's kiss in the first place why you know why did he um do a crazy performance like deadfall where he's wearing that ridiculous mustache and toupee and he's shouting in a strip club like what what you know what animates him behind the scenes what what is the the guiding force behind some of these ridiculous wacky you know out of this world performances that he's done Mm -hmm. and i hope that my book will help people um have a deeper understanding of, of his body of work yeah yeah what you get is like a you know a portrait of a person who has like made choices rather than is just like a random chaos agent you know like exactly <laughs> yeah 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 gosh well thank you so much for joining us do you think you will ever write another book about like a a film career like this or do this sort of like deep investigation into a a person's body of work um I'd like to um I don't think I'm going to write another unauthorized biography because <laughs> I will say that one of the most stressful parts of writing this book is the fact that Cage didn't participate. He declined to participate in the book, um, which meant that a lot of people who I would have liked to interview for, the, you know, every time I would reach out to a publicist requesting an interview, um, Hollywood publicists are very, um, they're very much gatekeepers of talent you know they are very selective about who they will allow their client to talk to and so a lot of publicists were like is this an authorized biography is cage aware of the book you know is cage participating in the book and um so it was frustrating for me that you know i wasn't able to interview everyone who i wanted to interview for this book especially because cage wasn't participating in the book so i'd really like to try to write an authorized biography of a celebrity, you know, I'd like to write a book about about an actor or a director who will actually participate in the book and and cooperate with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I haven't. Um, I don't. I'm still trying to figure out what my next book is going to be. So that's all all up in the air right now. But I, I definitely want to write more books about movies. I I really enjoyed the challenge and the. Um, I really enjoyed the experience of just immersing myself in Cage's filmography for three years and just trying to learn everything I possibly could learn about this one one artist's career. Mm. I hope you get to do it again because I had a lot of fun reading this one. And, you know, next time. Thank you. you. That means that means a lot. Okay, listeners, it is your turn. I highly encourage that you go and check out How Coppola Became Cage. It's available at your favorite library or independent bookstore right now. So please go check it out. You won't regret it. Thank you so much for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.